Hello and welcome to season two of Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon and I'm here with Ravi Gurumurthy who's opening his arms up to celebrate season two's reemergence. <laughs> Displaced is a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media. We are thrilled to be back this season. Displaced, as you know, it is a podcast that you should listen to if you're interested in the global refugee crisis. If you're joining us again, what we're going to do this time is go even more deeply into a few big issues that we want to cover. One is the future of war, how conflict is changing over the next five, ten years. Second issue is refugee resettlement and how we resettle the world's most vulnerable people. And the third issue is going to be about climate change and how that's going to change displacement in profound ways. We are starting with an in-depth look at the future of war. We're going to spend our first four episodes of this series here. We're going to be talking about how technology is changing war, how humanitarians are responding in an age when civilians are increasingly the targets of war. And we'll be talking about the hot spots where we're most likely to see conflicts in 2019, which brings us to our first guest, Robert Malley. Rob is the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group, which just published its list of the top 10 conflicts to watch in 2019. We're lucky to sit with Rob because he has been working on conflict prevention and understanding the underlying nature of conflict for years. He served in the Clinton administration as a special assistant at the table for Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations. He was on the National Security Council under President Obama and is really somebody who understands violent conflict and what's happening. And we're going to cover not just what are the main hotspots of 2019, but what are the big trends and drivers of change that are going to affect conflict over a longer period. So here's Rob Malley. Rob, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So Rob, the ICG, the International Crisis Group that you lead, sets out its 10 conflicts to watch in 2019. And we've been just digesting that list. And we wanted to talk to you about um, why you put various countries on that and, and how you go about actually putting it together. Can you just first of all just tell us a bit about what's the sort of essay crisis that you have at the end of 2018 when you figure out which country to uh, to put top of the pops? Well, for those of, of our listeners who don't know, our organization is it's a bit different from what they might see as a think tank in that we have a presence in virtually every country that we cover, if not a permanent presence, at least a, a temporary provisional coming in and out kind of presence. So to answer your question, we ask the people on the ground and all the programs, Asia, Africa, Middle East, Europe, US, Latin America, what they think is the are the conflicts we should watch. And then it's a triage. I mean, there always are complaints, and I'm already getting many from our readers. Why is our country not on the list? But we try to get those conflicts that we think are the most serious in terms of the number of deaths or the, the, the casualties, those that present the greatest risk of changing, of, of, of creating a geopolitical crisis, and those that are ignored, not seen, and therefore not covered, and that we want to bring to people's attention. To kind of roll us into 2019 with this kind of first episode of season two of Displaced, we're going to do a quick fire set of questions on the top three uh, conflicts to, that the crisis group has named to watch out for in 2019, Yemen, Afghanistan, and U.S.-China tensions. So starting with Yemen, um, Yemen is obviously the world's worst humanitarian crisis. 80% of Yemenis need humanitarian assistance. Millions are at threat of starvation. Why did the crisis group determine that Yemen is first on the list? Well, you really just answered the question. It's the most serious humanitarian catastrophe. People tend to think of Syria and others, and those are 
serious enough, but, but Yemen is not is the, the worst, and it could get much worse if, as you said, certain steps take place and famine, uh, a real famine gets spread throughout the country. So that was the main reason. It's the worst humanitarian catastrophe. I would add that it's also a catastrophe that is entirely man-made and that can be solved with the right degree of political will. We may get into that later, but it's a incredibly uh, 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 heartbreaking disaster, but it's also one that can be resolved. What's the biggest barrier towards a peaceful resolution that is negotiated in 2019? I mean, there's a whole host of, of, of uh, obstacles. I mean, the first obstacle is that the parties don't feel under pressure. They could go on. I mean, whether it's Saudi Arabia, the UAE, the government of Yemen, or the Houthi rebels all seem to think that time is on their side. Now, that began to change, and it began to change because of a series of missteps that the Saudi-led coalition uh, made. Uh, you know, for starting from the assass- the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, which put pressure uh, against Saudi Arabia on a different issue, but it led members of Congress to really point their finger at Saudi Arabia and to start taking action. The fact that uh, Yemen is on the brink of starvation uh, and famine that also ma- men made uh, the pressure increase, and so we saw more more pressure on the coalition, on the Saudi-led coalition. That led to the first breakthrough. The real now the challenge is, part, is putting more pressure on the Houthis because they are putting obstacles at the implementation of the deal. So as with so many of these conflicts, war economies get generated. The partisan conflicts see benefit in continuing in their current course. You need international pressure, local, regional, and international pressure to get them to change their calculus. We're beginning to see that in Yemen, but it's far from enough. And uh, the pressure from the U.S., from the U.S. members of Congress is going to have to continue. And then there's going to have to be pressure on the Houthis as well. And so just for a bit of um, an explainer for our audience members who are listening, can you give a, a brief overview of what's happening in the Hodeida port and why that's such a key, um, key inflection point you're looking to this year or potentially a crucial measure that you're following that you're really using as a barometer to know if things are going well and taking a turn towards uh, a more positive outlook? So uh, the port city of Hodeira is, is one that was taken over by the, by the Houthis when they led their, their, their march throughout the, the country. And why it's so critical is that it's a, today about, I'd say about uh, two-thirds, three-quarters of all of the humanitarian goods and necessities that come, through Ye- come to Yemen come through that port. Essentially, the whole northern part of the country, the most populated part of the country, gets its food, gets its humanitarian supplies from Hodeira. If there were tomorrow an attempt by the Saudi-led coalition by the Yemeni government to take that back, and they were a fight. You would it would cause a at least an interruption, if not a long-term halt, to the provision of those goods to to vast parts of the country, the entire north of the country, uh, and that is why people say, and the UN has estimated that you could have several million people who would be starving if that were to take place, if Hudaydah was if was shut off. Um, and that's why the ceasefire is so critical. That's why the UN devoted so much of its attention. That's why Crisis Group has really p- pinpointed this as the most serious issue uh, for Yemen and therefore for much of the world, given that it's the worst humanitarian disaster we're facing today. So uh, making sure that Hodeida is spared from an offensive is the priority right now. And we have to give credit to the UN and, and for having achieved it so far. But it's extremely fragile. I was just on hearing from our, our folks who, who are in or around Yemen telling me there's a lot of impatience in, uh, in, in the UAE, which is part of the Saudi-led coalition. They don't like the fact that the, the Houthis are not implementing the deal, and they are threatening uh, to resort to military uh, measures because they, they don't want to, to see this drag on. 
We're going to now continue on in our drive-by of the top three crises to look for in 2019 and switch to uh, the crisis group's second um, hottest conflict to watch for in 2019, Afghanistan. It's a bit wild to note that for a conflict that now is in its 17th year or so, just in 2018, over 40,000 combatants and civilians were killed. Um, currently, the Taliban controls roughly half of the country. What was the key thing that changed in 2018 that intensified the conflict and makes it number two on the list? So two, there are two reasons, and again, I said two reasons for Yemen, two reasons for Afghanistan. It is today, according to statistics that are always hard to gather, but according to the best reporting we hear, the deadliest conflict, the one that causes most conflict-related deaths. So Yemen, the most, uh, the worst humanitarian situation, we count famine, other issues here, it's just combat-related deaths. You gave the number. It's one of the worst years Afghanistan has gone through, and it's the worst casualty level throughout the world for any conflict, worse than Syria worse than Yemen, worse than Syria, worse than others. So that's number one. Number two, something did change. We see, you know, I'm, I usually don't give that much credit to the Trump administration. I'll give them this much. There is a greater determination, it seems, to reach a political agreement with the Taliban. We see the special envoy, uh, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, who's engaging in direct talks with the Taliban. That's a good thing. I mean, we, that needs to take place. The, you know, the, the, they may be a, an organization that people dislike that has not brought much joy to, to Afghanistan, but it's, it's a major party, the major party in the conflict. You just mentioned how much of the country they control. The U.S. is going to have to negotiate with them. It's a good thing they're doing it. So it's another one of these cases where we face a, a, a really catastrophic situation, one that's gone on for 17 years. I mean, to think about it, uh, somebody who's called to serve, an American called to serve in Afghanistan today, will not have been born when the uh, when the conflict began. It's the longest conflict in the history of the United States. We're still talking about resolving it. We're still talking about how the Taliban are gaining ground. That should tell us that uh, it's not been a success. It's been almost an unmitigated failure. We're going to have to change course. The first thing to change is to focus more on the diplomacy, focus more on direct negotiations, as I said, it's a good thing those are taking place, but uh, I don't want to sound optimistic because uh, there's so many obstacles to getting to where we need to be. One of the one of the barriers to the Taliban seriously negotiating had been their belief that U.S. needs to signal that they will uh, do a full troop withdrawal. You've now amazingly had that um, that statement by Trump in December saying he would withdraw uh, up to half of the fourteen troop fourteen thousand troops the U.S. has had. Um, to what extent is that going to potentially bring the Taliban to the table more seriously, or is it just going to unleash chaos where you know, the neighboring powers, particularly Iran and India and others, start to fear a Taliban-dominated Afghanistan and then start to back others? I mean, we could, we could spend uh, the full hour talking about the uh, <laughs> Trump administration's decision, and we could have put crisis number one to watch as the Trump administration. But, but, but the Afghanistan, I mean, it is another case where the instinct, first of all, the instinct to, to, to focus on the diplomacy, to talk to the Taliban was the right one. The instinct of withdrawing from Afghanistan is also, in our opinion, the right one. But the way it was signaled, it was done in the middle of negotiations between the, Amer the U.S. and the Taliban, where, as you say, one of the main things the Taliban want is a commitment from the U.S. that they will withdraw. This was done without getting anything in exchange. It was done sort of thrown out there. It's not clear whether it's going to happen. It does. It's true. At some extent, it may convince the Taliban, okay, the U.S. is serious. Um, but it may also lead the Taliban to decide we could just weigh the Americans out. And uh, that's not, you know, it would have been better to leverage this and to say, we are prepared to withdraw and we'll make the announcement. This is how we withdraw. This is when we withdraw. But we need to hear from you, the Taliban, something in exchange. For example, 
uh, an acceptance by the Taliban of the need to negotiate directly with the government of, of Afghanistan, something they have refused to do so far. So yes to the withdrawal, but the way it was done leaves us with a real question mark. What signal does it send to the Taliban? What does it, what does it tell the regional actors? Um, hopefully uh, uh, the special envoy and the US in general could play catch up and make up for uh, the mistakes that were made in the announcement and, and get it right. So let's just move on to your, your final conflict to watch in 2019, which is actually not a, a conflict in itself. It's US-China tensions. Yeah. Can you just say a little bit about why this came up so strongly? Because, um, you know, there are so many other things you could have chosen from, you know, Syria, Nigeria, South Sudan. But this is such a, um, this is so prominent. And, and why is that? Well, it was an interesting debate within the organization. We usually don't do these broad geopolitical uh, tensions, but... So, you know, we're talking about a rising power, China, rising economically, rising militarily, rising diplomatically, trying to play a bigger role around the world. With that rising with the U.S., the risks of things going uh, south in that relationship and having repercussions from the economically to politically to even militarily, one could imagine, in the South China Seas or in, in Taiwan – we felt that we couldn't ignore it because if things get wrong there, then the geopolitical impact would so uh, uh, would be so outsized compared to everything else that we mentioned that we had to mention it and we had to to mention what the implications could be. We didn't. This was not a reason why we uh, why we put it on the list. But I have to say, um, we have now also a a, a particular um, stake in this. Uh, China has arrested. One of our analysts who works, uh, who lives in Hong Kong, who lived in Hong Kong, but traveled regularly to Beijing and to the rest of China. But in what appears to be, he seems, appears to have been a pawn in a, in a broader equation involving China, Canada. He's a Canadian citizen, China, Canada, the US. Um, he seems to be caught up in this. So that's not why we put him on the list. But I have to say that from an organizational, personal point of view, it makes this uh, all the more um, important. What's the signal that you're looking for that from your experience, we should keep an eye on in which economic conflicts escalate into violent ones? Well, you see, in this case, it's not just that economic conflict could escalate into a violent one. It is true, though, as you say, that if let's assume the trade talks fail and China is uh, faced with these massive tariffs, even though China claims that it wants to keep uh, separate different files and it's not going to allow uh, the, 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 the trade talks to interfere with its policy towards North Korea or towards Afghanistan or it, in Africa. It's hard to imagine, at least from my experience, that those things could be truly separated. So if the trade talks collapse and you really are getting into a trade war, an intensive trade war between China and the United States, I, it's hard for me to imagine that China would not take a different stance vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, start helping the North Koreans more, start having more of the, you know, relaxing the sanctions, which could then lead the U.S. to feel like it needs to ramp up pressure on North Korea. And we could be back in the situation we faced a little over a year ago when the real risk, and I would note this, a year ago, our number one conflict risk was between the U.S. and North Korea. It didn't even make our top 10 this year. Again, something we debated, and it, you know, maybe that was the wrong call, but because of the another place where I'm going to offer rare praise for President mm -hmm. Trump is that his personal diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, it may not have been done in the most professional and the most, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the best way possible, but at least it brought us back from the brink. Again, I would add a brink that 
President Trump was leading us to, but at least he brought us back from his own self-created brink, um, which is, you know, and, and, and that, that's obviously a, a positive, but if things really go wrong between China and the US, it would not at all be ch shocking for China to undermine that kind of diplomacy Give more, uh, uh, give more to Kim Jong Un, who then would have less of an incentive to continue down the path uh, uh, of negotiations with the U.S. So that's why you know so much hangs on this relationship. And, and much of the narrative around China seems to oscillate between viewing them as an ally and demonizing them as a as a major threat. What's the right way, do you think, for the U.S. to think about China in the next year? I don't know how many people think of it as an ally. Certainly, they would be rare today. I think, I think we've seen now sort of a, a swing, uh, which is quite extraordinary. If you compare what people were saying, uh, China experts, uh, administration officials, uh, you know, from President Clinton to President Bush Jr. to President uh, Obama, where China was not necessarily viewed, as, you, as I said, as an ally, but as a stakeholder in the international system, a country whose integration in the global economy was a good thing. China's success was viewed as something that we had a stake in. If you go back and listen to what, again, Presidents Clinton, Bush, uh, George W. Bush, and, and, and Obama would say, I think now there really is almost a wall-to-wall -wall view of China as a rival, a rival that has to be contained and constrained. Um, and the problem, of course, is that that doesn't change the basic reality that China is not only already today a major global actor, it's one whose role in the international system, regardless of what the U.S. does or, or, or tries to do, is going to is going to expand. A number of countries are going to feel that they have to, they have to improve their relations with China, regardless of what the U.S. does. So you know we could say that they're rival. We could say that they're the the, the U.S. could say that it's a hostile uh, country. The U.S. is going to have to engage with it. The U.S. is going to have to find a compromise with it because um, is no. It's, I don't know that we could marginalize or, or isolate any country. We certainly can't marginalize or isolate China. Certainly at a time when it is gaining in power and the U.S. Uh, is is losing in terms of relative influence and power uh, simultaneously. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back soon with more from Robert Malley. And we're back with Rob Malley, President and CEO of the International Crisis Group. All right, so that that is the uh, rapid fire uh, wrap up of the top three crises. We're now going to uh, take a step back and um, kind of dive into a little bit more of the kind of reflections on changes in the way that conflict is happening, who's ended up on the list, um, and and how things are going. The first question I want to ask is. What do these top three crises have in common? And I want to take a note of the fact that we just talked about the top three crises, and you, in talking about them, praised Trump twice, um, which I think nobody would have expected um, in looking towards 2019. <laughs> but what are what are the common trends and drivers of these three and the broader ten that you see on the list this year? So I think the the, the broader theme, which I pick up in the essay that I write uh, before the, the the getting into the ten conflicts. Is, is that we are witnessing a relative or changing of the guard. Um, you know, one could describe the old guard as U.S. and Western dominated, U.S. and Europe dominated, not necessarily all for the good. I mean, if you're living in countries from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Rwanda to many others, it's not as if that era of Western hegemony or predominance was good news. But there was a certain sense of what the rules of the game were, who the main actors were. Uh, didn't mean there was no conflict, but it meant that there was some sense of knowledge of what the uh, what the rules were. We're now witnessing, and it's gone on. It's not all Trump. Trump has accelerated it, but it's not all him. But we're witnessing a shift, 
and with growing power in the hands of other actors. And all three of the conflicts that I, or that, that I mentioned are uh, subsets of that. In the Middle East, and that's why, so let me come back to Yemen, in the Middle East there clearly is a sense of vacuum, or at least, and I think vacuum is exaggerated, there's still 30,000 U.S. troops, so let's not exaggerate the sense, but there's a sense that U.S. power is declining, U.S. interest in the, in the Middle East is waning, so other actors feel like they need to step up to protect their interests or to expand the influence. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Israel. And Yemen is a victim of this proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of them uh, struggling for, for influence, and the Yemeni people paying the price. But also other, other regional actors, the UAE in particular, seeing how far it can go at a time when it feels like it may have more room to maneuver, but also more of a reason to maneuver, given its declining confidence uh, in the United States. Afghanistan, uh, you know, the U.S., declining its, in terms of its influence because and withdrawing again. I don't think that's the wrong thing, but you're seeing a number of other countries, Russia, China, Pakistan, India, uh, all thinking uh, they need to step up. They need to step in. They're going to have to protect their own interests. A number of them are talking to the Taliban. So again, a situation in flux. We know where we came from. We're not sure where it's going. And when this uh, in this middle ground, which is which presents opportunities, but also great risk. And finally, of course, China, uh, U.S., that's the poster child for this uh, changing of the guard, this changing of the balance of power in which one side is trying to hold on to what it had and the other one is trying to make up uh, for lost time and grab as much as it could. And do you see some of those trends being ones that are going to last the next 10 years? So U.S. retrenchment, continuing paralysis in the UN Security Council, democratic backsliding. Is that something we've just got to get used to? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, 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 10 years, who, who, who knows who, you know, we, we, so much has changed already in the last few years and last few in last month that for us to predict where we are in 10 years, I think it's going to be with us for some time. It's hard to see the international st system uh, stabilizing around an acceptable order with accepted rules of the game, accepted institutions, accepted forms of accountability. I mean, again, let's not forget, I, 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 we shouldn't paint too rosy a picture of the past. The reason why some of these institutions are being questioned and challenged is that they didn't deliver. Uh, you know, the, the UN didn't deliver, the uh, World Trade Organization didn't deliver, the ICC didn't deliver, the International Criminal Court in terms of uh, accountability. So there is legitimate, genuine uh, reason for questioning that order. It also was viewed as, as iniquitous by large swaths of the global south and, and countries like China and Russia, Brazil, South Africa, which question why they don't have a seat at the table. A number of them don't have a seat at the table of the Security Council, which is a obsolete, anachronistic uh, set of of, of countries that don't represent the real balance of power in the world today. Um, but also, you mentioned the, the backsliding of democracy. Uh, local domestic systems have not delivered either, and we don't need to get into this, but we do point out in, the, in, in our piece that there is a rise of populist, uh, demagogic, um, authoritarian regimes, and they're doing it on the back of the failure of the liberal order that, that existed beforehand. We've seen the result in the United States. We've seen the result in Brexit. We see the result with the demonstration of the Gilets Jaunes in France, the rise of populist parties in Italy. There's a common thread to all this is that people feel like the system delivered for the few, didn't deliver for the many. And then you have demagogic populist parties that try to take advantage of it and, and leading their countries into very uncertain directions. 
So I want to push back on that just a little bit. Um, we're looking at the uh, predictions that have been made since the crisis group started kind of publicizing them online in, in about 2012. And in 2012, about seven years ago, the top five conflicts. About seven years ago. We're a little flexible <laughs> here with how we count. I think we can be precise on that one. <laughs> just giving myself space. Uh they, the, Syria was on there, Iran, Israel, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen. Two of the top uh, three are the same as today. Um, Syria and Iran and Israel make today's list, and Pakistan's the only one that's actually removed. So when you take a step back, I think there is a sense right now globally that there's this changing of the guard, that everything is being overturned. But when you actually look at the concrete predictions from you know a pre-Trump era, not a lot has changed. So isn't kind of one interpretation that uh, we're overreading all of this tumult right now, and that actually when you look at the year to year, a lot more is remaining static than we think it is. So I'm, let me take issue with your taking issue uh, I, in, in this sense. Um, I said, I mean, if you read the piece I wrote last year, not that I'm asking people to read everything I write, but last year I wrote a piece in which the first line one, first line was, it's not all about Trump. Yeah, yep. um, although inevitably, as I say later, a lot of it is about Trump, but this changing of the guard has been going on for some time. It's not a 2019 phenomenon. It's not a 2018 phenomenon. I I think, you know, my when I've what I've said in the past, I think the the invasion and occupation of Iraq is a turning point. Now, again, I don't want to say that all history history pivoted on that moment, but it was both because of what it exposed in terms of U.S. overextension, the limits of U.S. power, the anger that it that it provoked among others. And I think it was a microcosm, and but also a trigger of many else many other phenomena, which would probably have happened anyway. But again, history moves in 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 broad trends and then there are accelerators this was one accelerator the, the the war in iraq and everything that it that it then um triggered so when you say that a lot of the conflicts we mentioned existed before well yes that's true but i think since 2003 we can say that we've seen a, a beginning of a trend that has gone through fits and starts but the 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 deep history the long history if that's what one wants to call it has been pretty constant in that we're seeing a decline in the ability of Western powers to impose their will, and we're seeing the rise of others. But it, as you, when you asked me earlier, is it 10 years? I mean, it's already been going on for more than 10 years, so it likely will go on for more than 10 years before we settle on a new, a new kind of uh, order uh, that we will recognize and that won't be as um, uncertain as today. Although, you know, you could, you, could, you could take issue with my taking issue and your taking issue by saying that the world is not, you know, as I said earlier, the old order wasn't that, not as if it wasn't tumultuous. Right. But I think there's a degree of uncertainty today uh, that, is, that is making problems different, not necessarily worse, but different. It's interesting we've talked quite a lot about U.S. retrenchment in the last few minutes. But at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about both Yemen and Afghanistan uh, in terms of how certain moves by the U.S. have have reshaped things recently. So post Khashoggi's murder, um, we've seen movement in Yemen, Afghanistan, there's a, obviously a critical role for the US as it withdraws troops. So given the sort of limited, the, 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 the diminished power that the US has in these different arenas, what's the best way for the US playing it? So, I mean, again, I, I always get a bit uh, nervous when people speak about retrenchment, and particularly in the region that I cover most, uh, I have covered most closely, the Middle East. It's a very relative term. No other country has, uh, outside of the region, has as much influence, has as many troops, 
continues to bomb. I mean, you know, day and night strikes take place uh, in, the, in, in, in countries throughout the Middle East and also in many African countries. It's a relative concept. The U.S. still remains to this day the most influential international actor, I think, by some measure, whether it's economically, whether it's militarily, whether it's diplomatically. But again, the trend is that it is in relative decline, and that trend is only going to continue, in my view, in our view. How it could best use, I think, you know, what, what is most dispiriting about what we're seeing today in the U.S. has been, uh, with some exceptions, and I've mentioned them, less interest in diplomacy, less interest in development, less interest in conflict prevention, less interest in multilateral efforts to deal with conflict, with other than a few, uh, a few that, that that again we've we've spent some time on, that's where the U.S. should be spending a lot of its energy, uh, rather than getting involved in in endless wars. It should be focusing on diplomacy, on working with others to try to multiply and and expand its influence and its strength. Retrench, uh, whether it's retrenchment or whether we want to call it a more go-it-alone policy, a, a, a more unilateral policy. That's exactly the wrong direction in which to go at a time when the U.S. has is losing influence. It should work with more allies, work with more partners in order to find ways to, uh, to, to, to bolster its influence and bolster its efforts to try to, to do what we think is that it would, would serve certainly global interests, but also U.S. interests, which would be to prevent, mitigate and resolve deadly conflict. Let me shift us a little bit. Um, as you're seeing this changing of the guard, we've talked a lot about how that's going to generate a lot of uncertainties that could lead to the very types of conflicts we're concerned about. What are the ways in which the changing of the guard may actually, from your perspective, open up opportunities for more conflict prevention, more conflict resolution? Are there going to is there going to be some silver lining um, for the way that things are playing out that you actually think is going to reduce violence? There is there is if as a result of this changing of the guard, one opportunity or one possible uh, positive that will come out of it is that regional actors, other actors, will take more responsibility themselves because they will see that the U.S. is not there stepping in and Europe is not there stepping in uh, all the time to uh, to either, you know, for, for good reason or bad reason, stepping in and, and, and taking over to try to, to direct the conflict in one direction or the other. So they have, one would hope to see a greater sense of involvement, of responsibility, by actors, by European actors, even European actors. I mean, let me take one case. You know, the the Iran nuclear deal, which was in which I, I participated in those negotiations. That you know, the U.S. led them. Of course, others played a, a, a very critical part, but the U.S. led them, and people and other countries were looking to the U.S. for guidance and leadership. Now the U.S. is out, and we're seeing Europe stepping up to try to prevent uh, Iran from resuming its nuclear program, provoking another confrontation. That's a good thing. Um, we're seeing in other, you know, in other instances, regional, the UN stepping up in Yemen. We're seeing uh, other countries trying to, to to get involved. You know, in the case of Syria, not necessarily all good news, but you know, Turkey, Russia, and others have had to do things to prevent uh, what could have been a a mass uh, a massive humanitarian catastrophe in in the province of Idlib, in the western part of the country. So these are not. Um, this is not. It was not necessarily the way we would want it to happen. But at least some countries are finding that to use an expression that both President Obama and Trump used, uh, they can't be free riders. I'm not a huge fan of that expression because it makes it sound like those countries didn't, many of them, devote a lot of their own uh, resources on development assistance, on diplomacy. But I think it's true that many countries sort of took a pass and said, well, the U.S. is going to take care of it anyway and uh, maybe take care of it in the wrong way, but they're going to box us out. 
I think we're now going to, one hopes, I don't know if we will, but it, it creates an opportunity for countries in Europe and elsewhere that have complained to me for years about, oh, the U.S. wants to play and they want us to pay, and the U.S. is, is boxing us out of the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians of the, of the Middle East and other places. Now, they, if they really want to live up to that complaint, now that the U.S. is probably not going to be playing as big a role, Let's see, let them step up. What can they do? I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, again, because the U.S. has not. Contrary to what Secretary Pompeo said the other day when he said the U.S. has been uh, sort of exclusively a force for the good in the Middle East. Well, it hasn't, it's sometimes been a force for the good. It's often been a force for the mediocre or for the bad, and that's true not just in the Middle East, but in other parts of the world, Latin America, Asia. So let's see what happens. Uh, I'm not saying this is necessarily gonna be a rosy future, but to have other countries take responsibility, decide for themselves, see that that they can't simply wait back, wait, and have others step in uh, to, to help them get out of a mess, or, or or simply decide that they shouldn't even try to get out of the mess because they won't don't have the wherewithal to do it because the U.S. will will prevent them from doing so. Um, as they adjust to this new new order, new world, it's not an order yet, but to this new, these new dynamics. Um, here's an opportunity for them to do more than, than and and uh, and see what they can achieve. Rob, I just want to. You're the first um, of a series of podcasts that we're doing on the future of war, and in our next one, we're going to be talking about technology and how technology is changing war, mm. particularly over the next sort of ten, twenty years, including things like artificial intelligence, autonomous war, cyber security, etc. I'm interested in whether any of the countries that you've looked at in your top ten are seeing. Um, technology affect the dynamics there? Um, and if not, at what point do you think your top 10 is going to be starting to affect, started to be affected by some of those longer term trends? That's a great question. We just debated it in a, at a board meeting. I mean, we're going to have to start looking at issues like artificial intelligence um, and the, the new technologies of war. I'll just mention two, two things that are already there. One is, it's not really new technology, but it is the role of social media and of fake news in exacerbating tensions. Uh, I mean, this is a theme that is very clear in Africa, um, and one could go back, you know, one could go back quite some time. But in more recent times, how conflicts have been exacerbated by the spread through social media of myths that taint one group uh, and put one group against the other. And I think that's one thing that we. Uh, I just came back from Nigeria, and it was th one thing that Nigerian uh, politicians wanted to talk about because, uh, and it, that had happened earlier in Kenya, the use of social media to make, uh, to exacerbate tension. So that's one area where I think we're going to have to pay much more attention. The other one, and it's already out there, I mean, drone, drone warfare, and I've written about it with my colleague Steve Pomper, uh, drone warfare has been a way of making war less, more, more um, sort of more distant, from the U.S. perspective and from the perspective of those countries, not just the U.S. now, other countries, even, you know, we saw that the Houthis used the drone warfare against, uh, against the, uh, the Saudi-led coalition just the other day. Um, what drones do, I mean, in, in the past, and I, I will focus on the U.S. for a second, in the past wars, uh, when they, they, they did involve more deaths among our, our foes or U.S. foes, there were casualties on the U.S. side. I mean, think of Vietnam and the, the movement against the war. Think even of Iraq with the, uh, the, uh, so many casualties coming back. Um, that is, that's a terrible thing, but it did create 
dynamics, pressures, constituencies in the United States or in whatever country was waging those wars to stop the war. And people could see the pictures and people could, could understand that there was this human dimension of the war. The, the benefit of drone warfare, of course, is that it limits casualties on the part of the country that's waging it, but it also limits the incentive or the pressure to end the war. And so the war could go on and on and on. The public uh, doesn't see what the impact is and the impact could be devastating in the countries in which uh, those drones are targeting. And so that's one, I mean, the more we go down in this direction, the more objectified war is going to look, the more dehumanized it's going to look, the cheaper it's going to be uh, in terms of human uh, resources to engage in them. And again, there's some positives from that, right? I mean, one could think of ways in which artificial intelligence and, and technology will improve and maybe limit uh, civilian casualties. But one, could, one also has to bear in mind how it's changed the calculus surrounding war. I... I was a both a, a an actor and a victim of it when I, I served in the Obama administration. It's very, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, let's approve this drone strike. You know, the risk is almost entirely incurred by the by the victims, uh, not by uh, those who are who are um, waging the war. And I think that's something people have to spend more time thinking about because it's uh, it's fundamentally changing not just the character of war, as you say, but the politics surrounding war. I want to take us and and as we start to uh, land this plane, um, because there's so much to dive into, uh, ask you a question about some of the cognitive biases that shape the way we think about kind of future conflict. Um, so, for example, you know, availability bias. When we were talking before about uh, the fact that people tend to overproject uh, um, based on what they can recall. Um, the most easily. So if people hear Trump has removed 7,000 troops from Afghanistan or has signaled that he's going to, they think that it's full retrenchment when really the important thing to remember is that actually there's 200,000 troops that the U.S. deploys globally. Um, and, you know, so those types of those types of biases that kind of shape everyday thinking. I mean, there are other biases, there are cultural biases, there are national biases. And I think, I mean, so my very broad answer is the way the way we work at Crisis Group. And again, I we don't even like to talk about ourselves as a, as a think tank because we engage in advocacy, and we certainly don't want to talk about ourselves as a think as, a, as an organization that is associated with any single country. Whenever we have an issue that a policy issue that we're debating, and I'm sure that you know this is not a, a foolproof system, we try to confront views from our folks in the U.S. with our folks in Europe, with our folks in Asia, Africa. So, and 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 I you know I try to give the lead to those those who are on the ground and who might be able to perceive things, not objectively, but with some, if maybe there's different biases which could cancel each other out. So obviously, if you're living in Afghanistan, if you're working on Afghanistan, you know how many troops are there. And so when you announce 7,000 are going to withdraw, you know 7,000 are going to stay there. If you live in Syria, you may know what, you know what these 2,000 folks have been doing. And so you have a very different perspective than you might in the US. And again, even on the notion of retrenchment, if you're living in a part of the world where you, the US presence, whether it's in uh, the, on the Korean Peninsula, in Europe, or in the Middle East, is still extremely heavy, and where everyone is hanging on uh, President Trump's latest tweet or iteration, uh, then you take that notion of retrenchment with a grain of salt. Um, so I think what for us, what's important is this constant interaction between people in different countries from different backgrounds with different perspectives. It doesn't mean that those biases don't, don't exist. And I think the, the, the bias that you're talking about, and I think we all suffer from it, is that we, you know, the, the bias of the immediate, which we, so we, we, we focus so much on it and we give it absolute weight when it may simply be a, a headline and, and not a trend line. And we are 
captive to it. I think I think the degree to which people, the sort of, and, and President Trump has so magnified it in all of us. He's made all of us almost incapable of thinking long term because we're so uh, absorbed and 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 both fascinated, perplexed, and mystified and horrified by by his latest pronouncement. But I think we do need to take a step back. And that's why, for me, it was important, the, the, the piece I wrote last year, to say it's not all about Trump. I mean, let's, you know, I think there is this, people call it Trump derangement syndrome. I think we have to be a bit, we have to guard against it. But there are things that are happening that, have, that, that, that have, we just spoke about them. They go back decades and that were going to be with us for decades. And if we simply focus on the moment, however, However, either uh, uh, fascinating it is or how horrifying it is, um, we're going to miss we're going to miss a lot of it. So, in a podcast about war, it's always hard to end on a positive note. But Rob, I'm interested in your predictions about what place or phenomenon are you most optimistic about in 2019? Oh, I don't know that there's a single place, but I do. You know, it's this this sense of of hoping of hope that countries will take matters in their own hands, and uh, they won't be. They won't be distracted by or or uh, focused on what the great powers think. Let's look at a case like Ethiopia. I mean, that's a huge good news story so far. I mentioned uh, earlier the case of of other countries stepping up to save the the Iran nuclear deal or to save what could be saved of the the Paris Accord without the United States. So I think there are there's a feeling, hopefully, that people will get that uh, multilateralism can exist even when uh, one of its key members uh, takes a pass or takes a time out, or even when one of its key members may not be as influential in the future. So I think the the, the hope and the, the positive comes from these thousand places where uh, people are, are laboring, struggling uh, to, to, to make their lives better, to end the conflict, to prevent conflict. And they can do it perhaps now f- less encumbered by uh, great powers that, that try to dominate and who didn't give, make much room Rob Malley, thank you so much for being with us on Displace today. Rob, thanks very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that's a wrap. That was Rob Malley, President and CEO of the International Crisis Group. If you want to learn more about any of the topics that we discussed on the episode today, do check out our show notes. They are at www.rescue.org displaced. Next week on Displace, we'll talk to Lauren DeJong-Schulman and Erin Simpson, two of the co-hosts of the Bombshell podcast, about how technology is changing the future of war. Lauren and Erin have got lots of close-up experience with this issue. Erin is a defense academic turned executive who now works in the defense industry. And Lauren has held a range of senior staff positions at the National Security Council and the Department of Defense. You'll hear Lauren and Erin in your feed next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Help us grow by sharing the podcast or telling your friend to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at displaced at rescue.org. Shoot us a tweet. I am at Grant M. Gordon. And I'm at Margaret Murphy. We will listen to you on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us about who you'd like to see on the show, what you're interested in, uh, what your dreams are. I'm particularly interested in different breakfast recipes at this point. We'd love to know what you're thinking. Avox Media Displaced is produced by Megan Kinane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter, with extra help this week from Michael Franz. Golder Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kerwa is the executive producer of audio. At the IRC, Anna Fuhr is our researcher, and a special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.